Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the long-lasting effects of smoking on immunity. And the solar system's new ocean. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Petrichow. We all know that smoking is bad for us, but now new research has revealed that it also has long-lasting effects on our immune system, even years after quitting. Smoking has a strong impact on the inflammatory response to bacteria, but that's lost as soon as you quit smoking, whereas the impact on the T-cell responses are maintained even many years after you quit smoking. This is Dara Duffy, one of the authors of the new research in Nature. Now, it's well known that things like sex, age and genetics shape our immunity, the inflammatory and T-cell responses that make up our body's defences. But Dara and the team were interested in the impacts of other things, things that we have a bit more control over, like whether or not we smoke. So we recruited a thousand healthy donors. Importantly, they're stratified for both sex and age, so half men, half women and balance from the ages of 20 up to 70 years old. And then to study immune response variability, we do whole blood stimulations. So we take one ml of blood in a really standardized approach and put it in these little syringe-based stimulation devices called True Culture, where we've already pre-incubated with different stimuli. So it can be microbes, it can be you know viruses, bacteria, fungi. It can be components of those microbes that we know activate specific receptors on immune cells, and then we can look at the immune response, the response to those stimuli in many different ways. So by seeing how people's immune systems responded differently to various challenges, like bacteria, they could then match it up with other things they knew about these people. Like, did they have any existing infections? What was their BMI? Did they smoke? How long have they smoked for? Or how long ago did they quit? The team actually found three things that were having a big effect on the immune responses. Whether or not the participants had a dormant cytomegalovirus infection, their BMI, and, of course, smoking. They chose to focus on smoking for a couple of reasons. One, we were 
quite struck by how many different associations there were with smoking. The second was the nature of those associations, that when we looked a bit closer, they were really interesting. So we saw an effect of active smoking on the innate inflammatory response to bacterial stimulation, but we also saw an effect on the global T-cell response. So we saw this dual effect in both the innate and the adaptive response. And then even more intriguingly, when we broke the smoking effect down into active and past smokers, we saw that the past smokers lost the effect on their inflammatory response, whereas they kept it on the T-cell response. These inflammatory innate responses are like your body's first line of defense. They react to any kind of challenge. Whereas the adaptive T-cell response is more specific, responding to particular threats. Now, whilst both could affect how people respond to things like bacteria or viruses, Dara and the team were interested as to why there was this effect on the T-cell response even years after someone had quit smoking. Violin Saint-André is another of the paper's authors. She had done her PhD in epigenetics, how certain changes, such as the addition or removal of methyl groups, can control the regulation of genes. So she wondered if this was what was causing the long-lasting effects they saw. So we see demethylation at some specific metabolism and signal transducer coding genes, with less methylation in active smokers, past smokers compared to non-smokers. And we see anti-correlation between the number of years people stop smoking, the total number of cigarettes they smoke, and anti-correlation between the years since they stopped smoking. So this all goes in the same direction. The fewest methyl groups were found on people who smoked for longer or more recently. And this reduction of methylation affected genes that in turn affected T-cell function. In other words, more smoking, more of an effect. Exactly what those effects are is something the team still wants to figure out, but they could hold clues to some diseases that seem to be affected by smoking. Smoking has been implicated in many different pathologies. Having higher T-cell responses is seen in many autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis associations, in COPD, and sarcoidosis, in, in many different disease settings. So there's still a lot to uncover, but this approach is really kind of a, a tool for discovery that we can identify these associations and then that gives us a strong piece to go into specific disease studies and test more clear hypotheses. In the future, the team will try and better understand these associations between smoking and immunity. But there may be other things out there affecting our immune systems. Air pollution, much like smoking, means that people inhale harmful things. So Dara and the team are keen to investigate further. So one of the genes that showed the strongest methylation effect, the AHRR. So AHR is the receptor and AHRR is a repressor of that gene. So AHR basically is involved in metabolizing toxins that you ingest. And, and that's why it's strongly associated with smoking. But there's definitely evidence that it's involved in processing of other toxins that you can be exposed to in the environment. So there's definitely a strong reason to believe that this mechanism could also be implicated in other environmental exposures. The challenge there is they're harder to study because, you know, smoking is self-reported and it's relatively easy to quantify by an individual, but environmental exposures, we're not even often aware that we're exposed to them. That was Dara Duffy from the Institut Pasteur in Paris. You also heard from Violin Saint-André from the same institution. For more on that story, check out the show notes for some links.
Coming up, scientists have found a new ocean on one of Saturn's moons. Right now, though, it's the research highlights with Dan Fox. More than 400 years ago, alchemists discovered a highly explosive substance called fulminating gold. Now, new experiments can explain why its detonation produces purple smoke. Fulminating gold is a mixture made of gold, ammonia, and chloride salts that readily explodes into a cloud of purple smoke. Scientists have theorized that particles of gold give this smoke its distinctive color, and now researchers have put this theory to the test. The team used heat to detonate samples of fulminating gold and captured the emitted smoke on copper meshes. Analysis using high-resolution electron microscopy then revealed what they were looking for: nanometer-sized gold particles. The detected particles had two striking properties. They spanned a broad range of sizes from 5 to more than 300 nanometers and they were spherical. The team says that the explosion of fulminating gold could offer a faster way to create such particles. If your interest in fulminating gold just exploded, you can read that paper in full in Nanoscale Advances. The dramatic rescue of an elephant seal pup swept out to sea could be the first recorded example of male altruism in the species. Altruism is found throughout the animal world, but the cost of helping others often means that many individuals and even whole species don't have much time for charity. Seals, for instance, rarely take part in altruistic acts. But rarely doesn't mean never, as demonstrated by a recent observation of a colony of northern elephant seals in California in the United States, when a seal pup less than 2 weeks old was caught in an undertow at sea. The pup was soon deep enough that it was struggling to keep its head above water. Seemingly in response to the cries of the pup's mother, an alpha male charged into the sea. Adult males seldom engage with pups, but this bull gently pushed the struggling pup back to shore. You can read more about this observation in Marine Mammal Science. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat where we discuss a couple of articles that've been featured in the Nature Briefing. Shawnee, what have you been reading this week? Well, today I am bringing you a whole new ocean, new in the sense that they've just discovered it, loosely speaking, as you'll see. and new in the fact that it's a relatively new-ish ocean but this is as far as oceans go this is a nature paper and i've been reading a nature news article about it that i found in the briefing and yeah it's an ocean buried in a moon of saturn that they've just kind of decided probably is in fact in there even though we can't see it <laughs> how does one go about finding an ocean that is as you say under the surface of a moon well with other moons it's quite easy because you can see on the surface of the moon so for example there's like Enceladus which is another like icy moon of Saturn and that has like geysers spewing out of it and they know that there's water under the surface there but this moon Mimas or possibly Mimas depending on how you want to pronounce it also just this icy moon of Saturn looks and and this is not my words um quite boring and that is I'm quoting from the from the news article there <laughs> <laughs> boring looking is how it is described nothing to see on the surface at all 
so they've had to be kind of quite clever. This has been kind of people have been questioning this for a while, whether there could in fact be water sloshing around inside. And what led them to question whether or not there was water sloshing around inside if the surface is, as you say, quite boring? <laughs> sorry, sorry, Mimus. Sorry, you're not boring. <laughs> in fact, one of the scientists interviewed does say at the end of this article, there are no boring moons. <laughs> so thank you, planetary scientists, for sticking up for moons there. But yes, this particular moon was already sort of noted to be weird in the way that its orbit wobbled as it went around Saturn. So when Cassini was off exploring Saturn and its moons, taking some pictures, researchers were looking at this sort of shape of its orbit then. And basically, because of this wobble, they said, okay, we think it's either got a buried ocean in there mm. or it's got a weirdly shaped core. Like it's the, the core of the moon is, must be shaped like a, a rugby ball. And so since then, people have been working on those two theories. And what was the key thing then to figure that it was, you know, an ocean rather than one of these other alternatives? It's, it's kind of a little bit of it has just been sort of progress this whole time. But in this particular paper, what they've also done is not just the wobbly orbit, but they've looked at how the rotation around Saturn has mm. changed over time. They've done sort of different simulations of what could be inside it and its orbit. And from this particular paper, they reckon there must be an ocean 20 to 30 kilometres below Mimas's surface. And another researcher who wasn't involved in the paper said this is the best evidence yet for an ocean. And just so I'm sure that I'm imagining this right, this is basically like there's a ball with a bunch of stuff sloshing around in it, which is making its orbit a bit wobbly, I guess. And that's how they've sort of determined this. Is that about right? Yeah, this is, um, if you've ever seen pictures of it, this is like the Death Star moon because it's got like this big crater on it that looks a little bit like the sort of indented satellite dish type thing on the Death Star from, from Star Wars, just to, just to help you picture that. And yes, the idea is that even though on the outside it looks geologically inert, the water is sloshing. And that's not just about like making its orbit wobble. The other interesting thing about that is that when you have the interactions between the ocean water and the rocky core, that could generate enough chemical energy to sustain living organisms. Ooh. And so they're not claiming there's aliens uh, on, on Saturn's <laughs> moon, Mimus. But the point is that if this potentially boring looking forgive me um moon actually has liquid water in there might be a lot more liquid water around than we thought and the more liquid water there is the more opportunities there are for extraterrestrial life to exist okay so i think i've got a good picture of what's going on in my head but at the start you said this was newly discovered and also kind of new as well. What what did you mean by that? You sort of oh, subtly yeah. hinting there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so the final point about Mimas's ocean is that it's relatively speaking a new newish ocean. So when I say new it's formed in the past 25 million years. Oh, brand new. <laughs> well, on Earth our oceans formed almost four billion years ago when the first ocean formed on Earth. So that's four billion compared to 25 million. So yeah, the blink of a geological eye, <laughs> so to speak. So it's a young ocean. Um, and that is actually one of the reasons why it was hard to spot and why Mimas looks less than thrilling, shall we say, on the outside. Why the ocean hasn't made itself known and shown on the outside 
like on Enceladus, say. So actually, that's maybe in the future, that's the long-term future, that's something that'll change. Um, and Mimas might end up looking quite different. It might end up looking like Enceladus. Well, if the podcast is still here in about four billion years, then we'll be sure to report on how Mimas' ocean is looking. <laughs> but bringing us back down to the present, this week I've been looking at a story about fake papers and how looking at the authors on the paper may be a way to identify their falseness. Oh, we've been talking various things about this, haven't we, on the podcast so is this like you could have a whole list of like really cool looking publications on your CV, but they're all actually not genuine journals or not genuine papers or what is it? So this is about fake papers. So these are papers that are produced by what are known as paper mills, which are basically entire industries that are concerned with making fake papers and then selling authorships on those papers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so... We've talked about people buying authorships and stuff before mm, on the yeah. briefing chat. And and with this, the main ways people have been trying to identify whether or not papers are false, which is really quite hard to do, is to look at the text and try and figure out from the text if it's fake. So certain clues, such as like tortured phrases, can give away that a paper is potentially uh, false. Like rather is that because it was just written by AI, basically? No, AI is actually a kind of a big problem here because AI, like things like ChatGPT, are a bit more fluent and they actually produce oh. better sounding text. Oh, Tortured phrases are where you're basically kind of plagiarizing someone, but you're trying to avoid using oh, the same words. So like right. rather than saying, I don't know, this won't be in a paper, but like I went to a cake shop, you might say something like, I was ensconced in cake, you know, a sort of unnatural, <laughs> weird way to say something. And that's been a key clue in the past. But as you alluded to, AI is actually making that problem a little bit more difficult. And so this approach has looked at it a different way. And because these paper mills are trying to sell authorships, it actually means that the authors on them are kind of coming from weird, disparate places. And so they've built a model to identify whether authors coming together looks a bit suspicious. Maybe they don't work in the same discipline or maybe they've never worked on another paper and that sort of stuff. So they're looking at trying to identify whether papers are false through that lens. Ah, okay. So never mind what the paper's about and how it's written. Is this a plausible sort of group of people who are likely to have got together to write this paper? And if not, that's a clue. Yes, exactly. And so this is a huge problem, these fake papers. So around 2% of papers in 2022 were perhaps from paper mills, which, you know, may not sound like a lot, but if you think millions of papers every year are published, 2% Mm. is many, many thousands of papers. So it's quite a lot. And obviously there's a whole industry here in trying to sell authorships to people and things like that. So This could be a good way to do that and especially circumvent some of these new challenges such as AI making the text sound a bit more plausible. Are fake papers really such a problem? Like, are people sort of making hiring decisions and publishing decisions based on this without realising they're actually getting duped by complete fabrications? Yeah, so it's a really big problem and people's careers 
are often dependent on whether or not they publish, how much they publish, whether they're first author, whether they're corresponding author. All these sort of factors are considered when you are going through the sort of scientific career. So it could be a huge problem, you know, you could be giving false promotions to people who have paid for authorship rather than doing Mm -hmm. the actual work involved. And it's also a massive problem considering that these are completely fake papers. Results Mm. in them are meaningless, but people could read that not knowing it and follow certain avenues of research that don't lead anywhere because it was fake to begin with. But it is just really difficult to identify whether or not a paper is fake because how do you know? Like, you know, you could challenge people, like, where's your data come from? But people don't always reply to requests like that. And then you can go to the journal. The journals may not know. You know, there's a lot of different factors here that makes it really difficult to prove that a paper is actually fictitious. So any other tool to our arsenal is probably a good thing. What are these researchers going to do with their new tool to sort of potentially identify this? So this was developed by a London-based firm called Digital Science, and they hope that this will be used to help identify researchers that bought their way onto a paper. And this code for the model that they've developed that identifies this is available. So you can basically start using it straight away. And hopefully journals and other organisations that are trying to track down these fake papers can use this in order to identify this and try and really tackle this problem. And because of the business model of these things that are obviously trying to sell authorships to people, that often means that they're going to end up with this disparate, weird group of people. So it Mm. potentially is a method that will be harder for the people producing the fake papers to get around. You can maybe make Mm. the text better, less tortured phrases and stuff to get around Mm. other tools that have been developed to identify this. But if you want to sell to lots of authors from around the world, then it's going to be tricky to get around the fact that they're all from sort of disparate, weird places and probably wouldn't come together necessarily. That's really interesting. This is this is a bit of an arms race. So we're going to be keeping reporting on sort of both sides, I imagine, of the sort of latest ways of finding these fakeries and, and the latest ways of getting around it. Thank you very much, Nick. And listeners, if you want more about these two stories, you can check out the show notes. We're going to put the links there and then also the link to the Nature Briefing, which is the email newsletter where stories like this get emailed straight to your inbox that's all for this week as always you can keep in touch with us on x we're at nature podcast or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com i'm nick patrichow and i'm Sharmini bundell thanks for listening Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.